Hi, it's Mike Morse. Welcome to another edition of Open Mic. Very happy you're here. This is our fourth interview that we've done with a wrongfully convicted man. This case, as the other cases, you'll remember Jimmy Dennis, Kenny Wanenko, and Aaron Salter all had these horrible, horrible cases. And every time I say that they have the, the most horrible yet perfect set of terrible circumstances that happen, that ends up convicting these people wrongfully. And as I'm going through and preparing for today, a gentleman by the name of Lamont McIntyre has all of the terrible elements that all of the other cases have plus some. This is probably the most egregious case that I've ever read about. I'm excited to meet Lamont. I'm excited to talk to him about his story. And I'm also really, really saddened by what I've read over the last couple of days as I'm preparing for this interview. So before we get any to any deeper into this, let's welcome Lamont McIntyre to Open Mic. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Hey, everybody doing? Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you heard a little bit about my introduction. I, you know, your case had it all, had all the terrible, horrible, bad facts of a criminal case that I've ever read. I, I don't even know what to say. Let me go over some of the facts. And I really appreciate you being here. At 17 years old, in 1994, you were arrested and convicted of a double homicide that you absolutely could not have committed because you were with family. You spent 23 years in prison, just got out almost three years ago to the day. Happy anniversary on that. Thank you. Um, you had an airtight alibi. There was no physical evidence linking you to the crime scene. You did not know the victims. You had no motive to hurt these people. You had no weapon. No search warrants were issued for you or anybody in your family, in your home or person. You had a bad police detective, Roger Golubsky, that we'll talk about. You had a bad prosecutor, Tara Moorhead. You had a bad judge, Judge Bur Burdett. You had bad attorneys representing you who have been disbarred since representing you. There was a bad photo lineup where three of your relatives, you and two other relatives, were out of the five, something I've never heard of. And witnesses have recanted since then. And I could go on and on, but man, I am just so sorry that this all happened to you. And I just want to know how you're doing right now, three years out. How are you doing today before we dive into all these horrific facts? Uh, I'm good. I mean, my life is uh, shaping up to be what I want it to be. You know, I'm, I'm married, with kids, and uh, I have my businesses. Um, I'm living my life. I'm doing, I'm doing exactly what I want to do in my life. Uh, it's a lot, you know, I still deal with stuff that you had to deal with, with that kind of experience, but for the most part, I'm, I'm all right. So it's amazing. You know, the other three gentlemen that I mentioned earlier, Jimmy, Aaron, and Ken all kind of say the same thing. I mean, they're not showing bitterness. They're not showing anger, although it's deep there somewhere. And they're, and they're happy. They're just appreciative to be out. They're grateful. They're humble. 
how are you able to, you know, put that all aside and, and um, move forward without being, letting the bitterness and the anger take you over? Well, for me personally, is you know, I got a good relationship with God. So I, I've been through my stages with anger and hurt. And years I wasted, spent, I spent in prison, man, years and years of being angry and hurt, man. And all that stuff was just hurting me. Me being angry and hurt and upset about something I couldn't change. And the people who I felt like was responsible for uh, having me in that situation, it didn't do, didn't do anything for them. It did everything to me. So it's just something I learned early on, man, that being hurt, angry, is not gonna change or fix my situation. So I don't, it's, 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 it's something that is unnecessary. So I don't, you know, I get frustrated. Don't get me wrong. I get frustrated. Like the, 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 the weight of the justice system, the, the way it's designed right now and the way it's going, it's frustrating to see it, man. It's frustrating to see so many innocent men and women uh, had to be in that kind of situation to fight to get their life back. It's frustrating, man. But angry. No, I'm not angry about nothing. That's uh that's wonderful. And it is frustrating. And you know, I I've been doing this interviewing people like yourself for not even a year, and, and it's frustrating as a lawyer to see the the corruption, to see the dishonesty, to see the terrible lawyering that you received and other other yeah. And I'm angry and frustrated for you. Um, so, you know, I've read all, I've read several of the interviews. I've seen the TV conferences that you've done. And I kind of want to take a, you know, I'm going to go over some of the facts for our viewers and listeners, because I think it's really important to share your stories because this is still happening. There's still hundreds, if not thousands of people, in my opinion, sitting in prison, needing a, needing a chance to get out and hoping to educate jurors and, other people listening that, that if they can do something, you know, I hope that they step up and do something. So, but, you know, before April 15th, 1994, the day of these double murders, you were 17. Tell, tell me about your life at that time. You're living with who? Are you in school? Tell me about what was happening in your life at that time. Man, uh, you know, you remember what it was like being, 16 to 17 years old, you know, you don't know, you don't have plans at that age. You just kind of go with the flow. And, you know, of course I wanted to be a comedian at that time. I mean, we had aspirations. I know what I wanted to do. Uh, at that time I was just a comedian, man. Real funny. Uh, everybody I was around, he's always telling me how funny I was. I just like cutting hair and, um, family, man. I was big on family, man. I was, a family guy. I always ran my family a lot. So I was just a 17-year-old kid just trying to go through life like everybody else do. I mean, how many, everything uh, you do is 17, you know? How many siblings did you have or do you have? Four. Yeah, and, we got four siblings. And you were living with your mom. Was your dad in the picture? Nah. Just okay. me and my moms and my, 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 my siblings. And, you know? and were you still in high school? Yeah, I was still in high school. And so, you know, I, I know what happened because I, I, I've read all the articles and I know that they pegged you and I know why. And we'll talk about that. But were you involved in, you know, had you ever been arrested before this had happened? No, nah, I wasn't. Uh, it was some stuff, not like uh, 
some serious stuff like that, but it was something that somebody else had did. And uh, I was arrested for it, but that was one of them questions that people always ask. They're thinking if there's something like this, see, this is the, the place we live in, right? So if something like that happened, if you got a 72-year-old kid and uh, he's taken from his life, right, and he's thrown in prison, instead of people looking at why an innocent person would probably go to jail, they'll look at well, what possibly could he have done to put himself in that kind of situation. So the questions always come up where it's like, well, you know, what kind of trouble was you into before? What was you into before? And they really had nothing to do with what really happened. Like a person, let's say, I don't know what, what, what every Azanaree got different walks and paths and different lives and all that, right? I don't know what it was for them, right? But for anybody that's in that situation where you uh, are a kid living life, right? Whatever you're doing at that moment in your life, right? Let's say you was even breaking the law whatever you was doing at that time, right? And a group of people decided to come and say you responsible for something you didn't do, right? You had nothing to do with it, right? And later on, they try to justify by saying, well, he was out there doing something, right? That's still inhumane. That's the sickest thing a person can do. And the way the system is designed, the way they got it set up, that stuff is disgusting, man. And I hear these questions all the time because this is how people try to rationalize that situation. How do you make sense of it all? Well, he had to do something. He had to been in this situation or he had to been around it. It was something he had to do to put himself in that situation. When really it was nothing I did to put myself in the situation. I I, I get that. You were with your family on that day, April 15th, 1994. What was the first uh, encounter you had that you knew that, that they were, that, that, Something had happened. How did you hear about this double murder? The police. They knocked on your door. Yeah, they came in. They came in. Uh, I went. To, I spoke to them, and later I was charged. Man, it wasn't nothing. You know, they charged me with it, and I went. To, they then eventually I was found guilty, and I went to prison. Man, twenty three years of my life trying to uh, fight that case. And these were court-appointed attorneys that tried to help you that did a horrible job? Yeah. Did you know they were doing a horrible job at the time? I know you were only 17, 18 years old. Um, Did you have a sense that that they were just not looking out for your best interest at that time? No. That's just just being young and naive. And uh, people don't understand what this means. When you you enter the justice system, people don't understand what a court-appointed attorney means. This is once... Again, one of the reasons why I speak at so many different conferences, so many different lawyer conferences, this is why I speak to so many lawyers so they can understand just how important that role is because that whole system is is flawed, man. You got public defenders that don't have enough money, resources, or time to handle as much cases as the state put on them to handle. Now, some, some lawyers are just good lawyers. They just overwork or they don't have enough resources or manpower to help out with a case, but some lawyers are just downright disgusting, it's despicable people. And I ran across a couple of despicable people that knew what was going on. I, of course, I didn't know what was going on legally. I didn't know how to defend myself legally. That's why I relied on the person that the course uh, appointed me. This is somebody that the course appointed me. I didn't go get this, uh, find this person. So it's, and with him going into it, not really paying attention, understanding, he probably had the same mindset thinking, this kid is here. He had, 
he, he couldn't be 100 percent innocent. He had to do something. He wasn't really concerned about nobody's innocence, man. They don't look at you like that. When you sit in court, majority of the people that's in court thinking you had to do something to put yourself in that situation. They don't think it, they don't look at it like what well, the police will lie. Or they don't look at it like the, the prosecutor would withhold evidence. Or no one would ever think that because of who or the position that they're in versus the position any exoneree of being in that in that situation. You know, I noticed that it was a four-day trial, which is unbelievably quick, unbelievably short. I know that the prosecutor was withholding evidence. I know that the judge and the prosecutor later turned out was having a romantic affair, which is probably the worst thing I've heard uh, ethics-wise concerning a judge. And, I, and the judge and the prosecutor are still prosecuting cases and still is a sitting judge. Is that true as far as you know? I don't pay attention to it. I don't follow them. What I do understand and know is without accountability, that kind of stuff will continue to happen. It's not even shocking no more to hear about it because it's a it's a common practice now. So this is why I'm on. This is the only reason why I'm doing this interview. This is the only reason why I continue to speak. I don't really I'm not even supposed to speak right now. I'm not even supposed to be talking to you right now. about none of this stuff. But this is important that people hear and understand just how flawed our system is and just how much. Uh, accountability is absent without holding people in those positions accountable they can just take a person's life from them snatching people's lives from them and ruin it with a license and that's what's been going on I, and i know you know one of the i mean there's a dozen horrible things that happened in your case one of the worst was this detective gablewski i don't even know how to pronounce his name um what was your first contact with him? Was he one of the arresting officers? No, nah, I don't have nothing. To, I don't have nothing to say about none of that stuff, man. Like my case is still being litigated, man. So I don't really talk about that kind of stuff. Whatever's in the public or whatever you read in the newspapers or whatever like that, whatever you read about him or that's that's the. I don't have no comment on none of that. Okay. Um. People can read about uh, him if they want to. Uh, there's a lot of information. I know he's being uh, investigated and there's a civil lawsuit against him um, that I read about. Um, so, you know, you mentioned how bad you think the system is with, with court appointed attorneys. We've had lots of experts on our show talking about the flaws in the system. And when you, you mentioned that you get up and talk to lawyers all the time, Tell me what you tell me what people should know about how bad our criminal justice system is, how bad the defense system is. Well, the, the thing is, I went through that whole process, right? Not knowing what was going on, what to expect or whatever. Right. So I had a court appointed attorney who was he was he wasn't prepared for the case. Actually, he was on probation. Right. For screwing up another case. And they appointed this person to me while he was on probation and on his way out the door as, a, as an attorney. Right. So when I speak to other attorneys, I always let them on. I let them in on a secret. Right. Where it seemed like no one else know about. Every time you go to defend anybody. Right. There's always a chance that this person you defend is innocent. And I don't think lawyers really think that. I don't think people go into that kind of situation thinking the person they defending is actually innocent. I think they're just going to be a legal representation for the person and not actually listen to follow the follow the evidence with that kind of stuff when you 
listen to your client, get to know your client, understand that there's a possibility that this person that you're talking about or here to defend could be innocent. My lawyer did none of that. He could have took the time to just try to even get to know who I was as a person so he can at least try to defend me in a way where it's like, get my truth from me and then use my truth to defend me. That was not the process. And I think court-appointed attorneys, because they're not getting paid a lot, probably feel like, well, I have to put a lot of effort into it because I'm not really getting paid to do this. This is just something the courts want me to do. And that's just a horrible way of handling someone's life. It's a great point. I think, I think, and I've never really handled criminal cases, but I think that, you know, after seeing dozens or hundreds or thousands of cases, um, 99% of them plead to a, a crime, you know, there's a lot of trials, a lot of convictions that people get jaded and they shouldn't. Every case mm-hmm. they look at, what you're saying is every case, there's a, if the person tells you he's innocent or she's innocent, there's a chance that person is and you, you have to, you have to believe your client and and go with that. And I and I think that's a really good point you made. Yeah, it's hard to do, but it's necessary. You know what I mean? So you got you got out of the prison population in the United States, 120%, well now five percent um are assumed to be innocent. So that's out of our prison population, that's probably 120 something thousand people, men and women, right? In the United States, this possibly innocent if you don't think anybody who hear that and don't think that's a problem right and think that this should be addressed it's like what's the problem this this is that's an issue and now and they don't ever think about it talk about now now the last guy what was his name from detroit i met him too what would you say his name was kenny wanenko no the last one that was not the last name you mentioned aaron salter and salter now he's from detroit right Yep. Okay. I met him in uh, Atlanta, right? So what people don't understand and know is every time an innocent case happens, you see a person that's exonerated and he's free and he seemed to be like, he's happy and he's jovial because he has life back. What they don't know is all the stuff and all the hell this one person had to endure to get their life back. See, that's just the thing that people don't really talk about, right? It took a 17-year-old kid I went to prison, man. I came home at 41. Life, as I knew it, left. Everything that I came back to was gone. They don't know how damaging that is to a person's person's being, his emotional state. They have no idea how, how much it affects his family, how much it affects everybody that he loves and care about, and how much it affects his growth. Like, I didn't grow up in life. I grew up in a, in a, in a cell. Right. So when you got everybody out here like this technology, you see how this stuff, this is this technology, man, is so frustrating because everybody else is accustomed to living this way. Not me. I'm accustomed to writing everything down. I'm not accustomed to using a computer at all. It's frustrating for my my 14 year old son, my eight year old daughter. They understand this stuff completely. Right. I don't. I'm behind. Everybody else has been running a a, a race, a race. For 23 years, and I'm just now starting. No 401ks, no savings, no social securities, no, haven't been working for anything like that. No work history, right? But this is the stuff that no one talks about. Like they don't ever talk about. So this is what I did. The reason why I'm talking about this is because this is what I did. I came home, I started an organization called Miracle of Innocence. 
So it's an Ennis's organization. I started with another exoneree named Daryl Burke. We started that organization two years ago. We got our first exoneree home three, four weeks ago. So the same organization who helped Daryl and I get out of prison, which was Centurion Ministries in New Jersey, it was an Ennis's organization who helped us get out. When I got out three years ago, Daryl had got out years before I did. When I came home, he and I had a conversation. We started our own organization, Miracle of Innocence. And it's a growing organization. If you if you want to check it out, it's miracleofinnocence.org. If you're interested and you want to know what's going on, we have a gala, a virtual gala tonight. Um, it's free. If you go to miracleofinnocence.org slash gala, you'll be able to, to join in and see what we're doing and how we're doing it and see our first person who came home, uh, Ralph McElroy from St. Louis, Missouri. And you'll see what we're doing, but this is how important this stuff is to me. This is why, but this is, don't nobody talk about this. So yeah, yeah. where have I, I been? I, yeah. I looked at your website, it's beautiful. We will put something out there today to try to get people involved and in, in watching. I plan on making a donation and I was curious so how did Centurion hear about your case? Do you have any idea? Did you write to them? Did they read the articles? How did that come about? Because that's always fascinating to me because without someone taking an interest, you mentioned 120,000 people. How do, I've always wondered, in, you know, how do we get the attention? 120,000 people, how do they get the attention? They all need to happen, what to happen to you, what happened to them. How do we get the attention of an organization like Centurion or a, or a newspaper or a TV outlet. So tell me how that came about. Man, that's the hardest process, man. So 2001, I reached out. I seen them in a magazine. I was reading the Jet magazine and I had read that I just uh, freed an innocent guy that was in for murder and robbery. And uh, I thought that was interesting. I'm like, wow. So I wrote them 2001. They corresponded with me and let me know that they're not taking my case. They're just looking at it to see uh, if there's anything they can do, right? So the correspondence between me and Centurion Ministries went on for eight years, 2001 to 2009, without them taking my case at all. They took my case in 2009. That's eight years of correspondence and trading in information and sending in documents. 2009, they hired my legal team. I came home 2017. That entire process took 16 years. I wrote hundreds of letters a week to all different organizations, different types of uh, media source outlets. I wrote Oprah Winfrey. I was writing all kind of people. Uh, and I sent a lot, a lot of letters out, man. And a lot of people responded, but a lot of people couldn't do nothing for me. A lot of people said there was nothing they could do because they are small res uh, um, a small organization with, with limited resources. So there was a lot of stuff that we just they just couldn't do. Centurion Ministries wrote back, wrote back enough some more, wrote back for eight years before they decided to take my case in 2009. So you were the squeaky wheel. You were the one behind it. You were the one getting people interested. You were not sitting back because you knew how innocent you were. And, mm -hmm. and you knew that, that once somebody really looked at this, that um you would be exonerated i mean did you did you have that in your heart did you know you were coming home one day i did i mean i did i had hopes that well i had i had my my innocence always was a, a crush for me it was always something that held me down and uh i always relied on it man i knew i was innocent i knew i had to belong there so 
starting out, I was so hurt and angry, man, when I got convicted, man. I went in and I was so hurt and angry. So that first five years was like me being in a, 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 I don't know, it was like a trance or a shock or something, man. For the first five years, I was angry, man. I was I was so hurt. I was depressed. I was I didn't sleep. I didn't eat, man. I was just going through the worst, right? And uh, and then I met a guy in prison who, who introduced me to God. I started to pray. I started to take care of my body. I started to uh, want to live, man. So from that moment on, I fought my case. I was I was filing my own motions and everything, man. I, I fought my case. My lawyers had abandoned me because my money ran out. I didn't have enough money to pay for lawyers, so they just stopped filing motions for me altogether. Uh, I came into another contact with another lawyer. There was a horrible guy I never met. Whatever he's he's been disbarred since then, and uh, I kept going, man. I kept pushing. I did denial after denial. It's another thing people don't see and understand. The average case for an exoneree, man, you're going to see so many denials from courts, man, from civil, I mean, from uh, state court, uh, civil, I mean, um, appellate court, Supreme Court, federal court. You're going to see all these denials, man, year after year after year of denials. You know, I don't even know how to ask this question. And, and, you know, I talked about this on the show and it's something as a lawyer and I, you know, I see... I get the daily um, cases that come out of our Michigan courts and they're all for the most part denials. Like you're saying, they affirm the lower courts. And then I meet people like you and Jimmy Dennis and Aaron Salter and Kenny Winenko. And I, after the fact, we Monday morning quarterback the case and say, how could anybody in your case included not have turned this over, you know, 20 years ago. And these court, these court of appeals judges, and don't take this the wrong way, but everybody's telling them they're innocent. Everybody is saying, not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. They're all saying, we want a reversal. We want a reversal. And I'm thinking to myself, if I was a court of appeals judge, you know, how do you, because it's only written paper you're reading, you know, how do you, how can you tell through the, 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 all of the tens of thousands of documents you get a year, the, 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 the people who are truly innocent, like yourself, it's not like, I don't know how to make an impact that they'll really wake up and read it and really look into it, look at the prosecution, look at the police, look at the bad judges. What's your answer to that? Is there an answer? Well, as a judge, you understand before that, that's a chain of command. So before all that stuff get to me, the judge is probably thinking all these people didn't did their jobs. The police can't be wrong. The attorney can't be wrong. The judge that oversaw the case can't be wrong. I mean, the so judge the jury can't be wrong. They don't like messing with jury verdicts. Well, it's funny how they don't like messing with jury verdicts, but they all, they don't mind the, the, the verdict to be come from a, a, a juror that's not of your peers. I mean, they, they, they got they got procedures, man, where they intentionally strike certain black people off a juror when there's a black person in the jury. That's the craziest thing. So so I'm not no, a black person is never judged by a jury of their peers. How many, how many, what was the makeup of your jury? Do you remember? White. It was, it was one black man on the jury and everybody was white. So one jury, so one, so here's the funny thing. People didn't know one of the juries, a bunch of juries reached out to my lawyers. was like, oh, well, you know, they felt bad about what happened or whatever, but there's one particular jury, man. This dude, 
was like Team Lamont the whole time I was in prison when I'm trying to come home. And he was like, even saying it, he felt bad about convicting me all this time. So here's my thing. If I'm a juror, right, and I'm in a, in a box with all these people and we in a room, we trying to come up with guilty or not guilty based on what we hear as evidence, right? And I hear something that's not convincing me that the person that's on trial is not guilty. There's nothing in that room that's going to convince me to find this person guilty if I don't feel like the the <laughs> the, uh, the state put on the case and proved to me that this person was guilty. But he said he went with it because, you know, that's what everybody else, they'd be tired, that's what everybody else in the room saying. So, you know, that kind of thing. That's how they weigh a person's life. Like, that whole thing is a joke, man. That jury, that whole thing is a joke, man. You know, it, it's no way I can be judged by a jury of my peers because jury of my peers would understand and know that cops, all cops are not honest, man. That's not your life. That's my life. You never, you never had to grow up feeling like there's a threat behind cops coming in your neighborhood. That wasn't, that wasn't your fear, right? That's mine. So if, if you're a juror and here I am speaking about police brutality or some, the, the stuff the police be doing, you can't relate to me. So you're not around me. You're not, it can't be a peer of mine because you don't live where I live. You're not, you don't see things the way I see things. You, your experiences is different from mine. That's why they use that as a tactic when black people are being, uh, on what well, black people on trial. That's a tactic they use, you know? I'm just curious, was the, was the one man who was uh, corresponding with you, was he the sole black juror? No, he was a white guy. Different guy, and he said, he he was apologizing throughout your twenty three years, or support? yeah, the whole time, man. The guy was like, he knew he made a mistake, and he knew he, you know, because there's nothing, man. When I say there's nothing to tie me to this crime, man, there's nothing. The case, the whole trial was just something they made up as they went along. They made it up. There's I'm talking about they had nothing. No, there was nothing to tie me to this crime. Nothing. They made up the whole entire thing. That's why me, my brother, my cousin was in a photo lineup. Out of all these, and the only thing, they, the only evidence they said they was looking for was a name Lamont, right? But I was the only Lamont in the photo lineup, and the other people that was in the lineup was not named Lamont at all. So what was the point, right? There was never, nothing to tie me to it. You know, I know I don't know the statistic off the top of my head, but but uh, inaccurate and fraudulent. ID situations lead to more uh, wrongful convictions than anything else. And you, you suffered it. And it sounds like they did it on purpose. Um, it sounds like it was completely intentional. Um, this Ruby Mitchell witness uh, later recanted and said she lied because of a bad cop, you know, threatened her. Sounds like the prosecutor, this Tara Moorhead uh, was a real piece of work. Um, I've seen her pictures. I mean, what a character. How was, you know, what's your impression of her? Or what was your impression of her during the trial? Man, understand something, man. I'm sitting here at 17, right, on trial for two murders, right, that I know nothing about. And I hear this woman telling the jury why I killed people that I know nothing about, man. I hear her and she's made, she made up all this stuff, man. I'm, she's saying all this stuff about me when I know. I'm looking at this woman, right? When I know I'm not responsible for what she said I'm responsible for. That's So how do you think I saw her? 
And she don't mind. Like she kept looking at me as if she don't see a 17 year old kid. She know I'm not the person responsible. She knew that. This is not an accidental thing where they no one understood or knew what was going on. The victim's family was always telling these people, the, the state, that I'm not the person responsible, man. This is not a this is not something that kind of just happened where accidentally where oh we made a mistake because we got mistaken identity and the witness said it was nothing like that, man. These people made up a case. What was the they, uh, what was the evidence that she hid from your team? Prosecutors hide to get a wrongful conviction, it's had to be a lot of stuff this, you know, the prosecutors know, okay, for once for for one thing. They convicted me, said they convicted me based on a confidential informant. Right? When they say where you get the name Lamont, all this is in my transcripts. Where you get the name Lamont from? They was like confidential informant. Somebody from the street said uh, Lamont McIntyre was the guy we was looking for. But where's the confidential informant? We don't know. They just made it up. There was never no, they just, that was something. And then they, they didn't, it was never no my confidential informant, man. There was I, never no evidence. Exculpatory information that I read about in some of the articles that that they didn't turn over um, to your lawyer. Do you, do you, does that ring a bell? No, nah, it was a lot of stuff. I don't know what what in particular. Okay. It was it was so much. It was like everything, man. They Did had to hide a lot of stuff. Yeah, that, that's, that's the only way you can get a you can get a conviction for something like that, man. Prosecutors violate. That's what that Brady's that that Brady claim. Was a, was a big thing, man. State versus Brady. You know, once that happened, man, that opened up that that one case, man, opened up a lot of doors for a lot of people, man, because across the world, man, prosecutors, they always withhold and hide evidence, man, that will be favorable to the prosecutor, I mean, to, to the defendant. Right. To get a the conviction. Brady- it, it seemed like they'll do anything just to get a conviction, man. Right. And the Brady case, you know, there there's a, just for our listeners and viewers is a case that stands for that the prosecution must turn over evidence that can help the defense, that can be exculpatory, anything they learn during their investigation. And it turns out in more cases than, than we like to hear about that they hide that evidence because if they turn it over, they may not get that win. They may not get that W. And a lot of prosecutors are not looking for justice. They're looking for the win. And that's obviously what happened in your case. Um, and, and what is your understanding about, I read in one article that somebody identified the real shooter later on, um, who was a, you know, a gang member or a drug dealer in that part of town. Do you know any, was that, I couldn't find if he was actually arrested and convicted of anything. Do you know anything about that? Nah, I don't know nothing about that. The only thing I know about is my case, man, and, and me going to prison and what I went through and uh the effects of something like that man so i speak out against it this is why i'm so passionate about criminal justice reform this is why because it's 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 not just me i'm anybody i'm i'm just i'm just lamont but there's a lot of lamonts out there it's a lot of people out there that's right now man i get we get so many letters man from people all over the world i get letters from people all over the world needing help, man. It's in the same situation I was in. And I answer every letter because I, I was on the other end of that at one point in time. Three years ago, that was me. I was the one hoping somebody just listened to me, believe in me. 
because I was hopeless. I was I was in that that was a man prison sending people to prison, man. I understand why prisons are built, by the way. So understand prisons are built for people who always victimize people of our society. So you have to elim- you had to separate the people who can't function in society so they build prisons for them. I get that, right? But prison for a person who never committed a crime is a real, real, real thing, man. And it sucks. It's a scary thing. It's 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 the worst thing ever, man. Tell me how the miracle of innocence uh, organization that you and your partner put together. How did that free this man three, four years ago, three, four weeks ago? What did you uh, What did you guys provide to to free him? I mean, I want to hear about that. All right. So, so just like the average or typical miracle, uh, well, miracle of innocence is a little different than any other organization, innocence organization, because once we help free uh, uh, any man or woman that's innocent, we give them comprehensive care afterwards, right? To help them, to help them get back into society and have them get back on their feet and everything. So we got two components to that one organization. So you know, we help them get out and then we support and take care of them and get them on their feet once they come home. Um, that's 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 mainly what we do with Miracle of Innocence. Like and getting them a legal team or yeah. once he got home. No, so we the legal team. This is what all the money come from. This is so it, it costs on average three hundred three hundred thousand dollars to free an innocent person. That's how much my case ran for about three close to three twenty or wow. something like that, right? That's just for one innocent person, right? So what we do is we go around, we raise funds, we talk about uh, the need for wrongful convictions, and we try to. We fundraise. We go to get. We make do galas. We do all these different things. So we got to pay attorneys, which is, we all know how much how expensive attorneys are. Private investigators, uh, traveling fees. We got staff. We got people that's on. We got development teams. We got people who go through our paperwork. Uh, we got an executive director. Uh, we got a, a functioning board. So it's a real organization, and, and to run it, it's a nonprofit organization. So to run it, you got to. Eventually, you got to raise funds to do it. And this is why our money, why most of our money go is towards the legal part of it. Got it. And have you been speaking with and, and working with the innocent? There's lots of different innocence clinics around this country. Different law schools have innocence clinics. Are you involved in uh, speaking and helping those organizations as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been sitting here in our ministries is one. Uh, I'm always connected to uh, Midwest Citizen Project. I'm connected to. Um, I'm really connected. If anybody need help or need that, I'm, I'm connected with anybody who's willing to do the work. Uh, I'm more interested in the work, not so much as who's doing it. The work, like yeah. I just want to see innocent men and women come home. Uh, that's that's a thing that we don't even address enough. I feel like I mean that's a serious thing to take somebody from their life. Throw him in prison for I don't know how many years. Like uh, Ralph just did thirty three years. He went in and he was seventeen. He just did thirty three years and he got out on parole. So that was our first step. So now we got to still get him exonerated now that he's home. Still oh. costs money to do that, right? So, but he been in since he was seventeen. I went in when I was seventeen and did twenty three years. He did ten more years than me. My heart goes out to him because I know how difficult now his life is going to be starting out. 
You know, I came home. I didn't know how to drive. I had to get my license for the first time at 41. I mean, my only my first I'm married to the first woman I've been with. Um, it, you know, I didn't have a chance to have kids. Uh, it's just, no, it's just so much been taken from a person in that situation that I'd be like, my heart goes out to him. And you deal with so much stuff. You got I've seen three therapists. I mean, you got all these different things you still got to deal with, you know, now on the, on the flip side of that, I, I you know, I, I do well in business. You know, I got McIntyre's Property Group. I started a, a real estate company with my brother that's doing good. Uh, I'm co-owner of a barber college in Kansas. Uh, I own a barber shop in Kansas also. Um, so business, I'm co-founder of the Innocence Organization. So business is good, but. On the flip side of that, trying to put your life back together for any exoneree or person that's been gone for so long or everybody else has been out here living life and going through the natural processes of life is difficult because you always feel like you're trying to catch up with time that you can never catch up with. I'm 41. I'm, I'm 44 right now, but I still feel like I'm 25 because I haven't, I haven't lived. My life experiences are so limited. So... One thing that I think, um, you know, I'm reading some notes here that, you know, your organization helps exonerees when they get out with all of their basic needs, which I think is so important. And I just I like to highlight this fact because it's such a messed up thing in our justice system is that when your friend who you were just mentioning got paroled, a parolee gets benefits, gets health care, gets job help, gets housing help get mental health help, all these things. And as an exoneree, someone who says you didn't commit the crime, we locked you up by mistake or on purpose or whatever, they get no benefits. You got no benefits. To me, that yeah. my mind, the first time I heard that, I thought that was wrong. I said, what? Somebody who actually committed the crime gets benefits, but the person who didn't commit the crime doesn't get benefits? How every state yeah. doesn't have a law or a federal law fixing that right now makes absolutely no sense to me. And yeah. Um, I, think, I think your organization is so, so needed. And I, and I hope that everybody watching and listening to this visits miracleofinnocence.org, makes a big donation for people like yourself and the people that you're helping because they're not getting any benefits. They're left high and dry when they get exonerated. Yeah. That's why we had, we added that second component to our organization because Daryl and I was in that situation. You need a lot of help. You need a lot of support. You need you start from scratch. And not only you start from scratch, you start from scratch with no savings, no job history, no car, nowhere to live, no clothes. I mean, you start. I had to prove that I was a Lamont McIntyre when I came home, but I couldn't prove that because I had no ID. The process of trying to get an ID to prove that I was Lamont McIntyre to begin to start my life was a process that was tedious. And it was overwhelming and it was stressful. So we put a, a component in place for organizations to help out with those needs. Uh, counseling, housing, uh, transportation, whatever we can help out with to suit the need of each individual that comes out, from, out of prison is what we're there for. Makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, if there's anything we can do here from Michigan, if there's ever anything that, you know, you need from my legal team to try to get those laws passed or do some research, please reach out to me and let me know because 
the Mike Morse Law Firm, we are trying to advocate. We have taken on a case from somebody sitting in prison with a life sentence that we don't think uh, committed a crime. We are trying to do our small part here in Michigan, and we would love to collaborate or help in any way we can. So we reach out to me if you need to. I will. I mean, we it's always a good thing. That's why, you know, most people don't do these things. They be like, I don't do that thing. My time is money. Anybody paying me to do this kind of stuff, right? But this is why I do it, man, to make connections, to network, because I feel like this is a big problem, man. One we have to we have to fix and take care of. Hey, this is one of my my friends calling from prison right now, man. Take the call. I was just Please. wrapping up with you. I appreciate your time today. Please stay Absolutely. in touch. Best of luck. Good luck on your gala tonight. I hope you raise a lot of money. Thank you, man. I appreciate that, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you guys. Nice to meet you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching another episode of Open Mic. Lamont McIntyre. I highly recommend you Google it to learn more about his case. He didn't want to talk about some of the most egregious parts of his case, including the detective Goblewski, uh, who is a horrible human being, in my opinion. This man uh, was sexually harassing Lamont's mother several years before Lamont was framed and then wrongfully convicted. And you're not going to believe uh, the fact that she said no to this cop, and then the cop framed her son a few years later. And then they put him in a, a lineup with five people, three of them were his relatives. The prosecutor and the judge were having a, a sexual affair. His lawyers are disbarred. This case has got more crazy parts to it than any other case I've seen. I can't, I, there has to be a movie coming out of this case one day because I don't believe it. I have to see this on the big screen. Anyway, if you like this episode, please click a button, like, subscribe, share this with somebody who needs to see it, someone who, who needs to be taught about our horrible criminal justice system the way it is right now. He thinks there's over 100,000 people sitting in prison that are innocent, needing to get out. So we all need to learn from this. We all need to remember this if you're a juror or if you're a witness or you're in any situation where you could help. Make sure you help. Make sure you do the right thing. Thanks for watching Open Night, Mike, and we'll see you next time.